I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy Mars Hill Church. I'm not really sure what I believe anymore, and I'm okay with that. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, an occasional preacher, a movie buff. Uh, Zach, you were speaking until I interrupted. Joke from tonight's GOP debate. Uh, And I'm still an evangelical. (laughs) And Dave, uh, you being an evangelical, that has worked out for the show since, and this is not common knowledge, but you discovered the medium of podcasting three years ago and were able to claim all of podcasts as our legal God-ordained property, and the rest is history. So uh, this is Veterans of Culture Wars. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we have conversations about evangelical Christianity, welcoming you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And uh, we have a Patreon now. You can go to VCW Pod if you want to support the show. And please leave a rating and a review as that helps other people find the podcast wherever you like to get podcasts. Zach, we have another good episode tonight today whenever people are listening to this uh we we have just a a guest that i'm super excited about who's on the show today yeah uh robert p jones is on the show he's the founder of prri uh which many of you have heard about is the the public religion research institute Uh, a lot of the polls that you'll see about you know 86 percent of people uh from the attend, attend church regularly think trump is the greatest thing ever uh, you know, a lot of times that's going to be data from PRRI. Uh, he is the author of several books, including White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, which won a 2021 American Book Award. His latest book is The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. He also has a sub stack that he keeps current at whitetoolong.net. Welcome to the show, Robbie. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, great to have you on the show. Just a just an excellent book. Um, not you know not necessarily the happiest of topics, but I think it is yeah. so necessary for people to read this to dive into it. Uh, we'll talk about this later in the episode. But I was K through twelve public school. Um, we definitely were taught about Emmett Till, but not about a lot of the other history very much, even in public school that you that you bring up in this book. Um, but before we dive into all of that, um, can you talk about an overview of your own background as a uh, with the Christian faith? Yeah. Were you involved in the evangelical church? Uh, and what was your experiences like with that? Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, for the most part. Um, I was a very regular member of a Southern Baptist uh, church in Southwest Jackson, Mississippi. Um, And I was that kid who was at church, you know, like five days a week. I mean, I was there, you know, pretty much all day on Sunday, um, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, but then there was like choir practice and Baptist training union and like all of these things in the afternoon, Uh, Monday night visitation, Tuesday night uh, 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 Bible study, Wednesday night prayer meeting, uh, you know, like Thursday and Friday were kind of the Sabbaths from church in my uh, upbringing. Uh, and then I, you know, I went to Southern Baptist College, uh, Mississippi College. Uh, I have a degree from a Southern Baptist seminary. I went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, 
Texas. So um, yes, deeply inside that evangelical world in the deep, deep South. Uh, and then did my PhD in religion uh, still in the South uh, at Emory University in, in Atlanta. Um, but um, yeah, that that Southern Baptist world was uh, very, very, uh, you know, present and and uh, kind of the dominant lens, you know, through which I saw the, the world growing up. It definitely sounds all consuming for sure. Um, just real briefly, how did you get, you know, cause you've written two books here about, about racism and the Southern Baptist convention has a, a very, you know, we'll say terrible history with racism. They, they apologize for slavery, slavery, I believe actually in the 1990s. And obviously People have very different thoughts about that apology, um, but with that background, how did you how did you come to be interested in this topic and in writing these books? Well, you know, I, I think it's been a very gradual process. I was born in 1968, um, and you know, really got no real history of our own denomination until I was at seminary. So, like, I had no idea what the word "southern" meant in Southern Baptist, you know, until I was in seminary, and I finally had a Baptist history professor, to his credit, at a guy named Leon Macbeth um, uh, there, who was one of the first uh, professors to really just say it straight and outright, right, that that um, the beginning of the Southern Baptist Convention was uh, to provide a place uh, where, uh, you know, people could make the gospel of Jesus Christ compatible with enslaving people. Um, that was the origins of our denomination. Uh, so, you know, it was like little insights like that. Um, you know, my 20s. Uh, and then just, I think, a, a long process of reflection and getting clear on my own history. And like, just like one personal story um, to kind of bring it home, I think, is uh, there was a real turning point for me is that my, my family uh, passed down a Bible on my mother's side of the family. And it comes, uh, it was published in 1815. And so this Bible has like between the Old and New Testaments, uh, a genealogy record of my mother's family for about three or four generations uh, there in the middle. And it was like a very prized possession, um, you know, kept safe all the way down through this, the fifth generation uh, now that, that I have. And I was given this Bible when I went to seminary. Um, and uh, but, you know, I, I uh, knew that that was the family that came that arrived in Georgia uh, from Virginia uh, in the early 1800s. And then we had all kinds of Baptist preachers and uh, men sisters and uh, others, you know, in that family line. And I was always a point of pride. But as I was doing genealogical research around the the guy, the my direct ancestor, my fifth great grandfather, uh, was named Pleasant Moon. And that's who the Bible was inscribed to. Uh, and so I was doing some genealogical research around him and, you know, found actually in a state settlement of his um, uncle, uh, who was his namesake, he was named after him. So this one page document um, had I think it, it says at the top of it, the goods and chattels of Pleasant Moon, deceased, 1815. So, so he died the same year the Bible's printed. And it lists, you know, all of his earthly possessions um, for tax purposes on this on this document. And it was listing like one bay mare, a cart, uh, a table, you know, with six chairs. And then about three lines down, four lines down, it has four human beings on that list. A woman named Naomi at $400 bird, a boy at $150 and it goes on. And then it just picks right up with uh, four head of sheep uh, and uh, a rifle and, you know, the, the other objects in the house. And to me, it was like holding these two things together and realizing that this legacy that we were so proud of, this Christian legacy we were so proud of 
was wrapped up in white supremacy, enslaving other people. And then indeed the very beginnings of the domination, you know, that I was a part of was, was wrapped up in that worldview. I think once that crystallized in my head, it was kind of, then it became the journey of thinking, okay, so if all that's true, how do I know where this commitment to white supremacy ends and my faith begins? It's just all tangled up together. And I, I, I heard you you telling about that uh, at the the Georgetown Faith and Justice yeah. uh, Center, uh, the the opening event for your for your book tour. And you also in that talked about I think that that same family where that Bible came from. You you did some digging and and found something f- equally disturbing, close to equally disturbing about you know, their land holdings and and sort of what set off the family's wealth, I, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, since then, uh, could you could you say what that was and, and yeah. when you discovered that? Right. And so you know, I think this is kind of the journey. Of this new book is um, I had you know I kind of knew that we were like a Southern family in the South uh, and, you know, white family in the South so that it had to be, you know, I knew that there had been Confederate soldiers, et cetera, you know, in in the thing, but I didn't know these details. So I started digging into it. And then um, I had never really, as a kid, like I knew, okay, we came down from Virginia, but I never thought about like, well, where did that land come from that that we landed on, you know? And and it turns out when I started digging into that, um, that that we essentially got free land um, uh, from a land lottery, and they just called it the Georgia Land Lottery, and they were handing out two hundred acre plots of land for people of European descent who would come down and take the land, and it was it was uh, land that they had forced the Cherokee uh, uh, Native Americans off of. Um, uh, by force and in violation of federal treaties uh, with the Cherokee who were promised uh, that, that that land would be theirs. Uh, uh, and and yet the, the treaty was broken and they were forced off on the Trail of Tears, um, you know, and that, that's also part of the legacy of uh, kind of, you know, my family arriving in Georgia. So it's both of those things and both of those things justified uh, by a Christian worldview. Now you you said you were born in the '60s. I I was born in the early '80s. So as a millennial, I'm used to blaming boomers for a lot of the general quality of life collapses over the last couple of decades. Um, so related to the story you just told, I was fascinated to learn in your book about a much older group of Americans who were also called boomers, uh, way way back in the late 1800s, uh, and sounds like they they were instigators and another enormous land grab. Could could you talk about that story? Yeah, you know, so in the book, I, I go to three places in the book. One is Mississippi. Uh, it's my home state. I want to kind of take a deep dive of kind of this entanglement of indigenous history, kind of European contact with indigenous people and uh, the enslavement of African-Americans. Um, uh, and so I, I do that in Mississippi, uh, in Minnesota, because uh, I didn't just want to pick on the South, you know, a good far northern state, um, and then um, in, in Oklahoma, uh, and the kind of, you know, boomer, uh, there were also a group called Sooners, uh, we still hear about in sports teams, uh, right, yeah. uh, today. Um, uh, but 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 these were, you know, essentially folks that there were, um, I mean, Oklahoma was such an interesting history. I, I didn't really fully grasp the history of Oklahoma, that, that what became that awkward looking state the caps texas right with a little weird arm on the top of it 
ends up being it ends up being that way because it was essentially uh, what was called Indian country or Indian territory uh, for the longest time in the 19th century. And as other states began to be carved out, they basically took bites out of uh, Indian territory. Um, and so what was left after all those other states around it took bites out of it was that strange looking uh, shape uh, that we now know as, as Oklahoma. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was, um, you know, essentially a very similar story, right, that the federal government uh, offered. That was the destination for the trail. I mean, the you know, Oklahoma and Indian territory was essentially a dumping ground for Native American refugees that had been forcibly removed from their lands all over the Southeast, um, indeed all over the Eastern part, Eastern part of the country. Um, and, and they were shipped off, uh, you know, at gunpoint in many cases, forcibly removed. Uh, and in some cases, uh, like with the Choctaw, a third of them die um, on the, on the way there. Uh, but their promise, like these lands will be there. If you just go on the other side of the Mississippi river, these lands will be yours forever. Um, and of course, those promises don't last very long. And yeah, this group of boomers and Sooners um, that were essentially people encroaching um, on those on those lands in Oklahoma in violation of those treaties, and eventually, um, through all kinds of shenanigans, uh, uh, you know, those those lands were for the most part uh, converted um, into things that white uh, uh, settler colonists could come and uh, and claim. Yeah. So they 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 were legally turned into unassigned lands. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you have the story saying that essentially like at, what is it? Noon, they just like blew a mm. whistle and everybody just ran to whatever spot they wanted to own and, you know, planted their proverbial or literal flag. It was a literal and stake that, in the ground. And that was theirs. Yeah. <laughs> a little, it was a little flag. Literal flag. That's, yeah, and this is just incredible. I mean, this was April 22nd, I think, 1889 on your book. I actually was just in Oklahoma because my dad was born in Muskogee, and I had never been to Oklahoma before. So I decided, you know, I wanted to take the trip and see where he grew up. And it was like a week ago, right? Kind of. Yeah, it was like two literally two weeks ago. And we saw the um, the land run monument. Uh, which was done by sculptor Paul Moore, which is there in Bricktown in Oklahoma City. Oh, wow. Um, it, it's an interesting monument. I, it, You know, it's very, very well done. I mean, 47 statues spread across a distance of 365 feet. But um, yes, the tour guide that we were with definitely emphasized the stealing of land and that the history of Oklahoma was pretty much all about theft. <laughs> you know, so that, that bit of history was there. Um, Robbie, I wanted to ask you, you know, I think with, um, you know, you're writing history and you're writing facts and and there's so much truth that we need brought to people's attention. Um, because as I mentioned, even in my public school education, you know, we definitely heard about Emmett Till. Emmett Till was pretty much just briefly talked about as like a catalyst for the civil mm -hmm. rights movement pretty much in public school. And I went to public school in a suburb of Seattle. So this is not necessarily a red area i mean this is kent washington but i i had never heard about the duluth lynchings until i read your book mm -hmm. um, same here i yeah. heard about yeah i'd heard about the tulsa race massacre just from articles probably over the last five years but i think it was about 20 years ago where they actually started uncovering uh what what had happened and then you put this in your book so a lot of this is just buried there's kind of an ominous sense of what else is out there that we might not know about yet that someone may come up with and 
I wanted to ask you, you know, as people wrestle with these ideas, I think I run into, you know, I, I know an awful lot of conservatives. I'm sure you do, too, with the SBC background. I think people want to feel good about the country that they're in, in, in the United States of America. I, I think, you know, there are many conservatives who are willing to say, OK, there were some bad things that happened in the past or however they want to phrase it. Um, they want to feel good about the country. But at the same time, you know, you and other historians um, in in the black community, the Native American community are bearing witness to these just atrocities that have happened. Uh, it, there's you know, that's probably putting it lightly. Uh, th there is just so much horror and evil. And what do you say to people? trying to you know there's a tension there right we're, we're part of this thing called america but we have to be honest about the history and the past informs the present that we're living in there's a connection we can't just write it off you know how, how do we deal with that tension do you think yeah it's really challenging i mean and i think you know i'll use we here um because i think i've been wrapped up in this you know we not only want to feel good about the country but we want to feel good about our place in it uh, right. And I think that's the bigger challenge, actually, is is we want to feel good about ourselves and we want to feel good about our place um, in the country. Uh, and, you know, if we're really honest about the history, it's going to be difficult to do that. Um, it's going to be uh, certainly and we're I think we're so accustomed to, you know, what I think of as this mythology of the country that just has this it's a fairy tale. Right. It's this impossible innocence. Um, about it, um, right? We're all heroes. Uh, you know, uh, uh, James Baldwin actually talked about this, you know, like we had this version of history where we're all heroes. We always treated everyone, no, you know, with respect and uh, and with nobility and all of that stuff, um, you know, and there's just no honest history that gets anywhere near a story uh, like that. But, you know, I, I think for, um, you know, conservatives and particularly for uh, conservative Christians, uh, you know, uh, we are supposed to be about the truth, right? Um, we're supposed to be about the, I mean, if, if I heard anything growing up in those services, you know, where we had an invitation, right, to recommit your life to Christ or to give your life to Christ at the end of every service, um, you know, there's this very serious call. Um, and if we, if we think those things aren't just pro forma, but we're actually doing some real work, uh, those were opportunities for us to be circumspect about our lives, right? And I think too often the wheels were sort of spinning around, got kind of hyper-personal things like, you know, have I been racist towards a, a coworker or a classmate? Have I had sex with my girlfriend? Like, you know, it was that kind of stuff that we were just completely preoccupied with, um, but never really asked the, the broader questions about how, um, you know, where our church was during the civil rights movement, um, you know, where our church was supporting segregated schools, um, like those kinds of things, just don't ask those questions, um, right? Um, uh, or, or, you know, where, uh, I think if, if every white, uh, you know, predominantly white Christian church in America would ask, why is our church on the land that it is on? Why in this part of the city and not somewhere else? Um, if it's if it's an old church and, and it moved, why do we move from our former location to this location, right? And and almost always those are stories of white flight uh, that are bound up with racist ideas um, about protecting segregation. Um, if we started a, a church school uh, in the 1960s or the 1970s, why do we do that, 
right? Um, and most likely the answer is because we didn't want our white kids going to school with black kids. Um, that That's why we, we did that. So I think there's just like a whole set of honest questions of reckoning that are hard to ask, but you know, uh, I could still, as, as Christians, right. Um, we're called to ask those questions about ourselves and, and our communities. I mean, that's really what discipleship is about. Um, I think at the end of the day. Yeah. I think we're in the, in the, in the midst, I think it's undeniable that it's not really, I think we are in this country in the midst and have been for, for a while now of a, of a huge reckoning and, and reevaluation of our past and trying to directly confront some of these things and bring, bring some of them to light yeah. and, and factions fighting hard against that. Um, you, you, you mentioned early on in the book, the 1619 project, uh, you know, it sought to tell the story of America through the lens of slavery by marking this new date as as sort of the real what one version of the the beginning of the country, the year putting 1619 into the public consciousness as the year the first slave ships arrived on our shores. Your book could, you know, could be called the 1493 Project. Um, and and 1493 is 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 there's a through line between these three stories you know the 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 Emmett Till story the the lynchings in in Minnesota the Tulsa race riot these these are the three main stories that you go through but there's a through line throughout all of them and in the things you were just mentioning about where was our church in the middle of this how are we responding to this uh were we thinking of ourselves as always in the right uh, as these things were going on what happened in 1493 and and how does it connect why is that the through line for all this yeah um well you know i'm i'm by training a, a religion scholar um right and so what's remarkable to me is that um i did not have that date or um the series of things that happened in the 15th century uh you know i've got a phd in religion and a seminary degree and it was not on my radar screen that this that, that what happened in the late 15th century was very important for setting the moral compass for um, really all of Christianity in the Americas. Like that just was not clear in my head. And, and I've gotten much clearer and convinced. I think in the book I've used the word like, you know, it, it's kind of the Rosetta Stone for understanding uh, the version of Christianity that that we've inherited here. So essentially what happens, right? Uh, we all know that not, we don't know that year 1493, but we know the year before it, uh, right? Uh, we're all taught 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, that little uh, rhyme that we learned in elementary school. But I think for for um, uh, the kind of, again, the kind of well, the moral compass gets set. It's actually less important what happened in 1492 and more important what happened in 1493. Because what, what happens is Columbus goes back, right, after this kind of brief stop. Uh, uh, and again, not in the anything uh, in the United States of America. He never sets foot uh, in the United States, in what is now the United States. But he goes back and he and he um uh he, and he asks for a few things. He's, he's like, I you know have landed on these lands uh, with these kind of people that we've not seen before, uh, and he needs he wants more ships, uh, more soldiers, more missionaries, uh, but he also needs something else, and he needs a moral mandate uh, for for going back. And so who does he look to for that? He looks to the church uh, for that. And so in the in the you know 15th century. Uh, this is before the Catholic Protestant split, so there are no Protestants. Um, it's before the break with the Church of England uh, and the Catholic Church. So all of Western Christianity is under uh, the Vatican and the Pope. And so he, that's who he looks to for this moral opinion. And uh, the Vatican had been working on this for a few decades, right, as other Portuguese, other Spanish explorers have been 
um, encountering other people's and, and asking the same questions. Like, and essentially the question was, um, what, what rights do these people have uh, that we are bound to respect? Um, and the church comes back with a pretty clear answer. And the theological logic that gets built up over a series of decades that culminates in a, a papal edict in 1493 essentially says this, um, if those people are not Christian, then they should be considered the enemies of Christ. That's actually the kind of bellicose language that's used um, in the documents. Um, and then uh, if, if they are the enemies of Christ, then in the service of the church and uh, and, and a Christian prince or, uh, or king or queen that you're uh, serving, you then have authorization, uh, political and religious authorization to go in to occupy the lands, to steal their goods, and if they resist, uh, to kill them, to to occupy by force, uh, and it even has like it spells it out, you know, and and uh, that that you have permission to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, right? I can remember that line, uh, kind of really resonating. And this is from the highest authority, right, uh, in the Western Christian Church um, at the time. And so, if we take that seriously, again, like this is in the very DNA of the version of Christianity that lands on these shores is, is driven right by that kind of a, of a, of a worldview. Um, and I, I think we kind of just sit with that uh, for a moment. Uh, it really helps, I think, see um, and explain, right. The, uh, the treatment of, of indigenous people, genocide, forced removal, claiming of their land, enslavement of Africans, kidnapping, enslaving them, bring them over, all of this is in service of this idea uh, that America was a, a divinely ordained promised land for European Christians. That's who this land was for, despite the fact uh, that it was occupied by other people. And yeah, this is just. I, I, I was just going to say Go that, ahead, yeah, I so I, I went to Christian school. It's been a very long time. I, I had public school for high school. But other than that, I went to a Baptist school, kindergarten through ninth grade uh, and uh, Christian uh, Evangelical University, uh, Seattle Pacific. Um, I I remember in elementary school hearing that phrase. At least I remember hearing about the doctrine of discovery. Um, uh, right, right alongside manifest destiny. And like it wasn't until like my early thirties that I used that term manifest destiny, and somebody was like, "Oh, that is not a thing that we talk about positively." <laughs> to me, it was just it's it's an old timey word for westward westward expansion, yeah. you know. Right. Um, but the way that I was taught history in Christian school was, yeah, entirely this country was divinely ordained. God gave us a right to come in here take what we wanted, take over, move everybody wherever we wanted to put them so that we could be in charge of the whole thing. And, and, uh, so the, the doctrine of discovery, I, I remember hearing that as being, yep, we were all good because we had the doctrine of discovery. Mm -hmm. Um, is, is, is that something, I mean, you, you said that that wasn't really something that you heard about growing up. Um, these days, do, do you think, do you think maybe my memory is wrong? Do you think there, do you think there's much of a chance that I actually learned about it? Uh, do you think many kids learn about it at all in schools these days? I don't think so. I mean, it's interesting that um, you you got it, but you got it in a positive justification kind uh -huh. of way, right? Um, that's so that's kind of notable. But you know, I went to public school in Mississippi and got none of that, right? But but there's no way to understand really any state, right? I mean, you you look at, at I mean, pick your state, uh, 
the names of rivers, mountains, counties, they're all like tinged with Native American, you know, language, right? Because those were formerly uh, uh, those former lands, right? Uh, before uh, people of European descent took them. Um, so, I mean, the, the witness to that history is still with us on the maps we have today, right? I mean, it's, it's still there. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't think so. I mean, as I've kind of, you know, done my own little mini uh, kind of asking around, you know, people, even people with PhDs like, like me, you know, just didn't get a lot of that. Um, but, and I should say that there's no excuse for it. I mean, Native American scholars in particular, for 50 years have been writing about this. So this is not like something I turned over with a shovel you know, myself. Uh, what I turned over was 50 years of scholarship by Native Americans. Uh, I mean, this guy named Vine Deloria Jr. Um, wrote this heartrending letter in the early 1970s, I think it was 1972. Um, he just called it an open letter to the Christian churches of North America. Uh, he's an you know, indigenous man and scholar. And he essentially wrote this a very uh, kind of uh, open pleading letter. And he, he just said, you know, all we're really asking is for you to have a more honest accounting of your own history and your own place um, in the country and, and what you and just own up to what you've done. Right. That's really all he was asking. He and he was one of the key scholars that kind of, you know, said like and the doctrine of discovery is a key part of uh, the confession. Right. That we really are, are looking for. Yeah, that you know, we even the Christian idea of repentance. Repentance is not just saying that you're sorry. It's a it's a full change and turn away from what was going on. But yeah. the first step to that is awareness. We have to know what happened. We have to know how how people were affected. Um, you know, back the Doctor Discovery again. Me being a public school kid, I I could be wrong and not remembering, but I don't even remember that as a concept being being taught in in school mm -hmm. as a as an actual thing manifest destiny i think might have been mentioned and yeah. it definitely was mentioned as not not a great thing you know but um i think there there wasn't a lot of detail or diving into what those things necessarily meant at least you know in the context that i was i was learning about them um i'm curious robbie with with the idea of the doctrine of discovery, you know, your book is about you have different periods in history. And I think you really are showing how the past informs different presence. You know, there, there's stuff that's built up in the past and then it comes to fruition and it keeps going. It keeps going into our times today in 2023. Do you see, you know, whether on social media, maybe disturbingly in, in some of the circles that you're aware of that there is kind of a Christian nationalism that definitely is interested in if they're not actively saying doctrine of discovery they're they're interested in that idea the idea of colonization being good of conquering for Christ being good and using government to do that um have you been seeing chatter about that out there yeah absolutely I mean you know I think in many ways uh, what this research, you know, did in the book is just kind of make it really clear that we've just always had, you know, these two competing visions of the country. And, and it really comes down to like, who is the country for, right? Who belongs, right, in this country? Um, and we've had these two competing visions since before the Republic, right, uh, that came down. And so one of them is this, this idea of that it is a divine, that America is a divinely ordained promised land for European Christians. That's who the country is for. 
that's been a very old, like it's 500 years old, right? That, that idea, or we have, you know, in other documents and other kind of cultural trajectories, we have this idea that no, the country is a pluralistic democracy, right? Where everybody stands on equal footing, regardless of race or religion um, uh, uh, in this country. And, uh, and, you know, but even our, even our founding documents are shot through with these contradictions. I mean, that's the, the, the kind of shock. It's not like we have religion on the one hand and our founding documents on the other. Both of these traditions are like entangled even in the declaration of independence or the constitution uh so they're they're both there kind of all the all the way back um and so i i think it's not a surprise like i think the you know white christian nationalism is like the the newest like the the way we're describing the current manifestation i think of of this but it 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 goes all the way back you know and so when we we asked for example uh, on a recent survey at at prri uh, we did a survey with the Brookings Institution earlier this year. Where we were trying to suss out, like, okay, is there a thing called Christian nationalism? Can we measure it? Um, you know, can, can you sort of see how where it is? And we tried uh, several different measures, building on other people's work and political science. And essentially, what we found is um, about a third of the country uh, it was about three in ten. Uh, essentially just straightforwardly affirm this very old idea, right? That the country is a designed to be a, a promised land uh, for European Christians. Um, and, you know, the reason why it gets, now that sounds like something that should just go by the wayside if two thirds of the country reject that idea and only three in 10 affirm it. But the problem is uh, that that three in 10 are heavily loaded on one side of our partisan divide, right? And so we have uh, a majority of white evangelicals. That's kind of my people I grew up with, Um uh, agreeing with that, and a majority of Repub self-identified Republicans actually affirm uh, this idea. So when you've got that kind of locked into a partisan divide, uh, you know, then even though it's a very lopsided thing in the country as a whole, but it gets filtered through these partisan lenses, and I think we're still wrestling with it. But it boils down to really the same idea, right? That, that this, you know, that this country is essentially for uh, Christians of European descent. reading the section on the Tulsa race riot, uh, which just like Dave, you know, I definitely didn't hear about to the last five, 10 years or so. Um, I think you mentioned a couple HBO shows that, yeah. that, that were key to, to making people aware of what happened. Uh, the, the Watchmen and uh, um, Lovecraft country. Um, yeah. Both, both of those dealt with it in different ways. It was fascinating though. Um, I, I, I just kept, thinking of of how buried this story was i think that's the one that you noted that in going through like the microfilm uh microfiche whatever of of the local newspaper for that day like that story had been removed like torn out of the of the archives yeah, from the original archives yeah. Right. yeah yeah like like they didn't want it in there I, I i kept thinking about you know who it benefits to keep this story hidden i kept thinking about the current oklahoma superintendent of public schools ryan yeah. walters uh, super controversial by design, uh, combative culture warrior guy who 
claims that he's out there rooting out CRT and, you know, he's demanding higher standards for teaching. But at the same time, he, he just said that we're going to be showing Prager U videos to yeah. to your elementary school kids, yeah. which are just straight up propaganda. You know, like growing up, I heard all about all oh, revisionist history is this huge problem. Uh, you could speak to that and that, you know, I think Kevin Cruz has said like revisionist history is history. <laughs> like we learn more yeah. things. We revise our understanding and what we write down about them. Um, but this is the pra- Prager, Prager or Prager, uh, Prager. It's straight up. It's making up. Yeah. A history that that mostly seems to be driven by a desire to prevent white people from ever feeling uncomfortable. Um, where do you see the process of teaching history going? Um, mm. I mean, do you think we're on this path to a shared American future that your that your book title uh, names there? Well, I I think you know we're we're in these fights about history because we're grappling with. Uh, the truth, right? Um, uh, and the the challenging truths are threatening to come forward. And so there are these efforts that, um, you know, I use the term willful amnesia, right? Is I think one way of thinking about what's happening here, right? It's 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 a it's a very determined uh, forgetting uh, that we're that we're engaging in, in in many circles. And so you know, you're seeing, I mean, the whole the entire. Uh, debate around critical race theory is just a completely manufactured debate that's about uh, squashing uh, 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 uncomfortable history is really what it it, it it comes down to. Like, it's no mistake that uh, if you if there's one thing that's named, even in some of the legislation uh, at the state level, they name the 1619 project as prohibited material, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it gets singled out. So, I mean, that tells you exactly what they're what they're up to um, in the, in those uh, in, in those efforts, but but they are these kind of desperate attempts, I think, to kind of hold, you know, put the finger in the dike, hold back the waters from, I think, this moment of reckoning that we're um, uh, that we're dealing with. I, I ultimately don't think they're going to be successful. Um, you know, I think that they may be successful for a time in local jurisdictions, um, but I, I, you know, I, I don't think they seem to me, you know, a kind of last gasp effort um a kind of desperate last guess effort to yeah you know, just kind of hold hold it all together while you know everything is crumbling um of that that edifice and let's not forget that that those uh you know the 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 kind of history that's getting revised was not an accidental history those were manufactured histories uh to tell like you know a very particular story that justified the racial status quo um in this country you know so the United Daughters of the Confederacy, for example, um, which were responsible for the vast majority of Confederate monuments that we see across the country um, on public land, um, right? That was a very intentional process. Um, I live in in D.C. and just this past weekend, just this weekend, right, we had the National Cathedral finally replacing windows that were stained glass windows that were put there by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, glorifying. Uh, the Confederacy, right? Just this past weekend, they got replaced. Like so, that's how it's kind of where we were very much in the middle of this story. Um, but but in addition to monuments and stained glass windows, uh, the other thing the United Daughters of the Confederacy invested in were uh, textbooks mm. uh, and textbooks that told a flattering story about the Confederacy, um, you know, and glorified this kind of whole lost cause mythology. So this uh, effort to kind of control history 
is not a new one, uh, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. And I think we're living through another one of these kind of convulsive uh, times. But I do think it is a pushback to progress and reckoning uh, that that's happening. It didn't come out of the out of nowhere. It is like an absolutely reactive uh, moment. Um, and so whether it's the, uh, you know, declaring in Arkansas that AP African American history is no longer going to count for uh, high school credit, uh, yeah. an attempt to ban AP African American history altogether in Florida and banning books, uh, burning books in some cases, uh, shutting, you know, taking books off the shelves in libraries, all of that, right, is, is um, the same thing. It is the same attempt to hold on to, yeah, just this impossibly innocent uh, myth um, about how we came to our current circumstances. I uh, I ran across an article that kind of plays maybe a little bit into that myth or or the um, amnesia that is going on. And this this was published uh, September seventeenth, twenty twenty three, Evolution News, which is um, the conservative think tank, the Discovery Institute, written by Nancy Percy. I don't know much about her. I think she's an author. Um, but it's amazing. It's a short article. And, you know, let me let me just I'll just read a few lines here. Uh, quote, talking about human rights leads naturally to the question of slavery. Many people fail to realize that virtually every society has had slaves from the Chinese to the Arabs to the Native Americans. In fact, there is only one worldview that gave rise to moral opposition to slavery namely Christianity. The first person to offer a moral and logical argument against slavery was a church father writing in the fourth century, Gregory of Nyssa, argued explicitly on the ground that all persons are in the likeness of God. And then she goes on to mention Christians in the Middle Ages, um, Thomas Aquinas pronouncing slavery as a sin. And she moves on to talking about Charles Finney, uh, the Presbyterian minister, the famous revivalist who called it a great national sin. And then that America is the uh, well, she says here, finally, there was the Civil War. America is the only country on Earth to sacrifice hundreds of thousands of its own citizens in a war to end slavery. And of course, I'm reading this like simultaneously while I'm reading your book. And I'm like, wow, there this is like, you know maybe if we're being fair or well, maybe if we're being nice, like half the story, but there's a lot left of the cutting room floor here. There's a, there's yeah. a lot not in here. Um, Didn't Jonathan we, we Edwards about, like write a sermon yes. on the back of a slave? Oh, he, he owned slaves. Yes. Uh, so the Southern Baptist, which is the, the largest Protestant evangelical denomination in the country, yeah. just apologized again for slavery in the 1990s, Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan pastor, and really Jonathan Edwards is a massive figure, not just in Christian history, but in American history. The, the guy is just a towering figure, and he owns slaves. And um, Dr. Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, is very good on this point and a very good book to read uh, in contradiction to the article that I just read, that actually there were many Christians, sadly, tragically, that defended slavery and that were slavery apologists and slavery owners. They use verses in Philemon. They use the household codes in codes in Ephesians. Uh, slaves remain as you are. Uh, this this was a theological argument, and so you know when Robbie's saying there's there's whitewashing going on, there's selective amnesia. There's there's a lot of you know the full truth is not being told, and. I have to think that a lot of what is going on in our society is just because there are many people who actually aren't exposed to that full truth, as we were just talking about the stuff that we did not learn even in public school. 
Yeah, well, the whataboutism, you know, is, uh, I think, easy to reach for, right? What about Wilberforce? What about De La Casas? Mm -hmm. What about uh, Finney? But, you know, as soon as you kind of dig a little deeper, um, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass was really, uh, I think, dismayed and and railed against the fact that uh, so many of the abolitionists that were against slavery were white supremacists. And I think we we sometimes think like, oh, wait, if you were against slavery, that means you were for black equality. Um, but for the by and large, that was not true. Charles Finney, we'll take that example. Um, so Finney, right, renowned abolitionist, no doubt about it. Right. Um, but uh, but when he, he had a young protege that um, was uh, going to organize an interracial worship service Um and he stopped it dead in its tracks and wrote to his protege and said, no, 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 you misunderstand. The principles of abolition and amalgam amalgamation are not the same, right? So still uh, not for black equality and essentially held on to a white supremacist worldview, even though he thought slavery was a sin, right? And, and that slavery was a great evil, but that didn't stop him from thinking there wasn't a racial hierarchy. It just meant that we shouldn't enslave people. And that this, like, you know, uh, something that Douglas railed over and over um, uh, about. And, you know, I tend to think of those folks um, as really important, like people, markers, certainly. And in many cases, they were voices crying in the wilderness, minority voices, um, you know, and th they're important to kind of hold on to. But they did not win the day um, at, at the end of it, right? Um, and we don't get virtually nationwide segregation, uh, Jim Crow, uh, all of those things without, you know, the vast majority of white Christians thinking, yeah, that's just fine uh, with us. In fact, that's the society we want to live in. There's a there's a passage I'd like to read towards the end of your book that that kind of speaks to this. You know, Dave, you've br you've brought up a couple times like awareness, like like it, it's good for people to learn about these stories. And you 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 write in here something that I thought was was really profound. Um I'll just read it. Uh, I grew up with a sense of America as a divinely chosen nation of, and of my people as its rightful inhabitants. Over the last decade of my adult life, particularly, I've struggled to reorient as I've redrawn terrain on, the self on that self-serving map. I've realized that I needed a more complex and mature understanding of not only history but justice. From the chosen's vantage point on the high bluff overlooking the promised land, the river of history runs true from the headwaters to its terminus. Its waters are always navigable and calm, and its banks are never uh, eroded. The Chosen's view of justice is similarly satisfying. Quote, but let justice roll down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Unquote. This image, voiced by the prophet Amos in the Hebrew Bible and secured in American political memory by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1963 I Have a Dream speech, all too often functions as a naive understanding of social change. It can imply that the injustices of the past and the powerful systems of present oppression will naturally, when confronted with the facts, experience a catastrophic failure like a dam suddenly breaking. A favorite text in progressive white Christian churches, its attractiveness derives from the unrealistic hope the confession of past wrongs will trigger the flood of justice, which will by its own mysterious power wash away the old and make all things new. 
Justice and righteousness personified rather than people are the agents of change. There is no struggle or conflict, no cost to the powerful, only the magical appearance of a new world. You can raise, you can raise awareness of cancer, but without a cure, people are going to keep dying. I became aware at 15 that I had cancer, and if the doctor didn't cut it out, I would be dead. Racism, white supremacy, these are cancers that have been part of America all along. And I feel like we're finding, as we raise awareness, that a large part of the country just really likes cancer. Um, you started a polling company. You look at data. What are you seeing? If if Do you see reasons to be hopeful? Uh, for a while, I think we hoped that racism would die off just older generations and now the most politically engaged young people are terrifying <laughs> uh, far-right uh, uh, neo-Nazis, practically, uh, or in some cases, exactly that. What What are you seeing? Is there hope? Yeah, um, you know, I, I don't have at the end of the book anything like a 10-step plan or um, anything like that. And yeah. but I tell you where I did find hope um, was in these local stories, right, of everyday people who said, we're going to stand up and tell the truth about what happened in this place. Uh, and we're going to do it because we're invested in this place, right? And we want to have a better future for our kids and for their kids. And that's really what I heard over and over. Um, you know, in the Mississippi Delta, there were um, uh, descendants of enslavers and descendants of enslaved and sharecroppers who came together across lines of race in a very rural, very poor county um, and just said like, you know, we can do better um, and, and we can create something better here. And it was a messy decades long, pro you know, two decade long process. Um, but that little group of people and some people walked away and got mad and they had to kind of reconstitute like, so it was very messy, but, you know, but that little group of people actually has succeeded um, uh, just last month, President Biden signed into law um, the creation of a new national monument that's going to be the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley National mm. Monument. Um, that would not have happened, right, without the work of those, like, really, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> people working with very few resources um, on the ground for doggedly for a couple of decades um, to kind of create the will at the local level. And and um, they've done some things like putting markers up uh, to Emmett Till's life in, in, in the Mississippi Delta. And now there's going to be this, this national monument and, and very similar stories in Tulsa and in uh, Duluth, Minnesota that I talk about in the book. But I, I think that's where I see some hope is that these were not well-financed, you know, kind of uh, people with postgraduate degrees. I mean, these were like everyday folks uh, that just said, you know what, we could do better in our own community and we can't do better unless we at least start with confessing what happened here and telling the truth. It, it, like it's that foundation uh, that's going to create the preconditions for something different uh, to happen here. And so I think the courageous stories of, uh, of those folks um, gives me hope. And, uh, you know, I'm a, a big James Baldwin fan has really shaped my thinking a lot um, as a white dude. Um, and, uh, you know, he he was when he was pressed for like, you know, what are we going to do? How can we fix this? You know, he would always come back. And I think this is just so wise um, to kind of a little hope. And um, and, you know, he was looking at in many ways some pretty bleak conditions himself, you know, after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy uh, and, 
and he, you know, would say he would say something to the effect of, um, "Look, you know, I don't know how we're going to fix all this, but I am holding on to and convinced of this uh, that we we can be better, like we can be better than we are," um, is how he would put it. And like, you know, so it's this like incremental, uh, kind of step by step, brick by brick uh, things, but. When these things change at the local level, they have a kind of um, uh, uh, inertia to them, all right. That I think make, that's the reason why Confederate monuments were all put at local places, right? Because they 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 have permanence in local communities and and they become part of the fabric. And I think the other the work for justice uh, does as well. When you look at locally, what was done to to uh, rem- remember Emmett Till for the for the longest time, or sorry. The Tulsa race riot is where the the newspaper story got removed. But Emmett Till, <laughs> you it's it's like two sentences or something in the book, but it really stuck out to me. You compare two roads, one oh. in Chicago, and one in you know Chicago is not where this happened. <laughs> um, in in Chicago, uh, they they had one way of 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 remembering this. In Mississippi, they had another. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, but I think it'd be really fascinating if if you could first uh say a little bit about this this cartoonishly racist sheriff who seemed to have made himself the center of the Emmett Till trial uh and and then explain this Rhodes comparison yeah well as an old Delta family um that this sheriff was from uh his last name was Strider um and so that name in the Delta people know that as a kind of planter uh class name um so you know history long history back uh, there, but he was, yeah, he was cut right out of central casting, big overweight, like boss hog. If you remember those characters from, uh, uh, the 1980s, uh, yeah, picturing shows. foghorn leghorn. Yeah. Yeah. Was really, you know, what you would imagine, you know, um, like he was during the trial, uh, he would walk by and there were, they had one table that he had forcibly put in the back of the courtroom for the black press. And he would every morning make a point of walking by that that uh, that table and saying "Good morning" inward, like, like that was oh. his morning meeting to the black press that were gathered to cover the trial. Um, you know, and 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 even a, a sitting uh, African American congressman came to view the trial, made him sit in the back uh, with uh, with the, with the black press at this kind of partially obscured view. Um, yeah, he was just just you know a, a pretty awful um, uh, a character. Uh, and, you know, in the Delta, like if you'd gone uh, to the Mississippi Delta, say, you know, anytime before 2000, and you were looking for any commemoration of Emmett Till, a road, a, a sign, there really was nothing uh, there. But there was a Strider Highway um, that you could see. Um, uh, Amazing. In yeah. Robbie, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's it's late down there in in Mississippi. Um, you, you've been so generous with your time uh, for us. Everybody, the book is The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future by Robert P. Jones. Uh, th- this book was on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, right, Robbie? It was. It debuted, yeah, number 11. Amazing. Wow. Congratulations for Thank that. You. That's uh, that's really great news. Uh, as we close here, are, are there just... Um, history books by native americans or black historians that come to mind that that if people want to dive deeper into uh these three accounts that are in your book um that they can seek out to to learn from yeah no thanks for that 
And um, there's a, um, uh, well, I mentioned Vine Deloria Jr. His book um, that is, it was written in the 60s, late 60s. Uh, it's called Custer Died for Your Sins. It's a remarkable read, um, you know, this far out. There's another book called God is Red uh, that he wrote as well. Um, and he, he's a scholar, but he's, he's actually quite funny and clever. Um, so it's actually a, a pretty enjoyable, uh, if, you know, conscience pricking for sure, but um, you'll laugh um, as well, um, you know, reading the book. Um, you know, I, I mentioned, we've already mentioned Jamar Tisby's uh, work, The Com Color of Compromise. Um, I also think of Willie James Jennings, African-American uh, uh, scholar uh, uh, who wrote a great book on race and the Christian moral imagination uh, that that talks about these early histories of um, the way that Christianity actually helped construct the whole idea of whiteness um, uh, uh, in, in, in Europe and uh, and into the into the Americas, uh, and then uh, you know certainly anything by James Baldwin uh, or one that often gets overlooked. I think um, written in the fort 1940s um, is actually um, a book called Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman, um, and this is a, a theologian that actually was a mentor of Martin Luther King Jr.'s, uh, and this was actually a book that King would carry around with him. Mm. Uh, uh, wow, uh, something that he just. You know, he obviously knew the book inside and out, but he would carry it with him, I think, just as a symbol of its importance uh, to uh, thinking about it. And and it's a book that talks about Jesus, um, you know, being in solidarity with people, uh, the way how way Thurman puts it, who have their backs against the wall uh, is the metaphor that he uses. And it, it's a uh, particularly if you come out of the white Christian tradition, um, uh, it, it, it's a sort of reorienting way of thinking about Jesus and particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Roman authorities, right. And in, in the new Testament, um, it's a kind of re really reoriented my thinking about how to think about the political realities that, um, around uh, Jesus message in the new Testament. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for, for being here. Just, uh, just great to talk to you and thank you for this book. It's, it's really, really excellent. Uh, well, I'd love to invite everybody uh to uh, come over and visit my Substack newsletter. Uh, it's free. Um, it is at www.whitetoolong.net. Well, thanks so much. Really appreciate being here. That was very good to talk to Robert P. Jones. Yeah. He is a, a very great guy, really interesting background. I mean, I, I was, I'm just fascinated with how steeped he was in the Southern Baptist denomination. And then how he got really interested in, I think as people are saying, trying trying to do the work, trying to do his own work and understanding not only his denomination, but the country and and what has happened to groups of people in the past and today who are not white. Yep. Um, and it's, uh, this book is very good. It's very well written. Yeah. I'm 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 glad that there's people out there like him doing this research. We we talked mostly about two of the three stories in the book, and I think largely because the Emmett Till story and the Tulsa race riot, I I think our listeners have at least heard of those. The third story in there about uh, the lynching of of three black carnival workers uh, out of a group of six who were falsely accused of a of a sexual assault. Um, that is a, is a story that, that is far less known. And, uh, there's, there's a lot of fascinating info in, in there. You know, he, he notes, uh, that there's a, a couple 
Catholic uh, uh, parishioners, uh, not parishioners, uh, uh, priests or, or some representatives from that, that that come out and try try to stop it, but no, nobody from the Lutheran churches, like the largest by far in the area, nobody on, is on record as having attempted to stop this. Um, there's, I, I was, I was fascinated to hear about like the one, the one main uh, priest who tried to, to end this, um, stop this lynching from happening was from uh, the, the Sacred Heart Cathedral in, in Duluth, which nowadays is a recording studio and public um, um, performance space, art space, um, where our previous guest Alan Sparhawk of Low, uh, record, no way, recorded uh, albums there. Uh, Mimi's memorial was held there. Um, wow! And uh, yeah, yeah, I was, I was struck because th- this lynching happened. These, these, these young men were were held in in a jail. And the mob came and like busted them out and and hung them, and uh, the the first album that Lowe recorded at Sacred Heart had a song about the 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 death of Joseph Smith, who was held in a jail and taken out by a mob, uh, or or mm-hmm. the jail was broken right. into by a mob who shot him there or whatever, and just sort of some similarities between what happened there and, and what they're singing about and this song that they recorded in that cathedral in that space um hmm. it's interesting to me but um but yeah they like there's there's a big chunk of the book that deals with that story that we didn't really get into at all here so absolutely recommend picking it up reading that um you know we said it's a new york times bestseller so you don't you don't need our recommendation to <laughs> do that yeah. um you've likely heard about it uh you may have even already heard uh robbie being interviewed <laughs> by now he's, he's, making he's the out rounds. there quite a bit yeah he yeah. is good for yeah. him this has been another episode of veterans of culture wars thank you so much for listening to us become a patreon uh, vcw pod and support the show please leave a rating and a review wherever you like to get podcasts as that helps other people find the show As long as uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, is not charging people to use it, we will be there at BCW Pod. I am at Dave J. Lester. Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. You can visit Zach's website, muzak.bandcap.com, pick up his vinyl record and hear some of the music that he's been doing. You can also check out my second podcast, Does the Bible Say That?, where I totally nerd out on the Bible, so if you're into that kind of thing, you can do that with me. Thanks again for coming on down to VCW. Remember, as always, the podcast is free. The Patreon podcast is not. But either way, you still need to tithe 10%.